Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman. We are also joined live today by Emmanuel Jean, Project Coordinator for Telecoms Sans Frontier. Emmanuel, welcome to the Digital Digest. Hi, Melanie. Thank you very much. Um, We're looking forward to speaking with you later in the episode, Um, but before that, a quick roundup of the headlines. This week, we have heard that trials conducted by Deutsche Telekom, Cosmete and Ericsson have used W-band frequency for wireless backhaul for the first time. A new digital regulator with the power to reign in big tech has launched in the UK. Bulgaria concluded its 5G spectrum auction in a single day, raising 8.1 million US dollars for the state. And LG Electronics confirmed that it will buy out of the handset game to focus on smart appliances. Meanwhile, over in Nigeria, uh, the country has extended the deadline to connect identity cards with phone SIMs due to lower than expected take up. And following India's spectrum auction last month, Airtel has sold some of its holdings in three states to Geo. Meanwhile, over the pond, TampNet has acquired BP's fiber network in the Gulf of Mexico. Zayo's network expansion in Florida has entered its final phase. And on the appointments front, Brincom has appointed a new MD to Datanet, which it acquired in 2018. Orange Business Services has appointed a new MD for the UK and Ireland. And OneWeb has hired a former Ericsson executive to be its new CCO. And staying on the people front, also in the news this week, um, Capacity's very own Natalie Bannerman was named as a top telecoms influencer. The 2021 list published by Analytica earlier this week is in its 10th year and Natalie was recognised as one of the 10 most influential journalists in the telecoms space. So huge congratulations there, Natalie. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, it was a a huge surprise Uh, and certainly not something I was expecting, but um, always nice to be recognised. So um, thank you again to Analytica for for recognising everything that that we do really and that I do. So, yeah, huge surprise. Congratulations, Natalie. It's good. Very well deserved. Um, And yes, obviously, Natalie's um, stories are published in capacity. But if you also want to follow um, the things that she's interested in across the industry, you can find her on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, And on the topics of listings, um, we're now in the final few days of nominations for the Power 100. So please do submit your top picks for the 2021 list via capacitymedia.com. But following that news, let's hear, as an influential journalist, Natalie, what's piqued your interest this week? (laughs) Yeah, so another roundup from me. I mean, we're going to start off, um, as I usually do, in the world of subsea. So um, Subcom and Forice, which is the international uh, connectivity provider owned by the um, Icelandic government, has actually confirmed that a contract is now in force for the supply and installation of IRIS, which is a new subsea cable system connecting Iceland and Ireland. Um, Now, the system will span uh, 700 kilometres in length, and it will feature a six fibre pair trunk with a total system capacity of a 108 terabits per second, with each fibre pair delivering 18 terabytes per second. Now, specifically, Iris will connect the southwest of Ireland to uh, Bally Lorraine Strand in Galloway Island. Forice um, has already completed the project desktop survey, as well as the marine uh, survey work on Iceland's continental shelf. And the remaining survey works to Iceland will be completed at some point later this year. 
it will actually become the third subsea cable to connect the two countries. Um, the cable and its equipment will be uh, manufactured at Subcom's manufacturing headquarters in the US between uh, 2021 and early 2022, with the main lay installation operations due to take place in the summer of 2022, um, with an RFS date for the end of 2022. So uh, still a few, uh, about a year off, but a, a, an exciting project for the region. Now, in keeping with the subsea theme, earlier this week, Telsia selected Siena's spectrum sharing submarine network infrastructure to power its Morea and Dunant subsea cables. Uh, using Siena's a spectrum sharing submarine network infrastructure, bit of a mouthful there, um, Telsia is actually able to deliver a flexible managed spectrum service, which actually enables uh, the offering of tailored virtual fibre pairs to its customers. Um, as we know, kind of tailored and on-demand services is really what is at the forefront front of, of subsea cable infrastructure these days so uh, great news there um, specifically Telsius will be using um, Siena's geomeshic stream subsea networking solution uh, a name that I'm sure we all have heard many times um, kind of across the space um, and it will be used to better address the needs of global connectivity content providers global enterprise and third party operators including included within this solution is Siena's uh, a 6500 reconfigurable line system integrated CNL band for scalable terrestrial backhaul, as well as its WaveLogic 5 extreme coherent op optics. Um, really, all these things kind of enhance the capacity and the fiber efficiencies on Morea and Dunant, which is, uh, you know, great news for any of the customers that are currently on that route. Now, over in the finance world, investment firms KKR and DTCP have unveiled plans for an independent wholesale fibre venture, which aims to deploy fibre to the home to a million uh, to a minimum, sorry, of one million homes by 2025. Uh, known as Open Dutch Fibre, it will deliver broadband access um, across urban and high density areas in the Netherlands. Uh, operations are due to begin this quarter with a fully funded commitment of approximately 700 million euros and construction agreements are already in place. Uh, T-Mobile Netherlands has actually been confirmed as the first anchor tenant under a 20-year agreement. Um, they currently have a mobile base of about 6.8 million customers and a fixed base of over 600,000. Now, according to Open Dutch Fibre co-founder Jordi uh, Nievenhersch, uh, high quality, reliable fibre connectivity is essential for the Netherlands. And ha this has only been accelerated with the structural changes to working patterns um, of companies and citizens brought about by the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so hardly a surprise there. But uh, Nievenhersch is actually joined on the leadership team by Uwe Nikil and Michael uh, Griffion. Um, in the CEO role. Um, so great news there. Um, it seems that a, a lot of kind of um, open fibre networks are kind of popping up across Europe. Um, so great that we have this one as well. Now, lastly, over in the Middle East, Etisalat is building a cloud native open RAN, um, so open radio access network in Afghanistan. Now, using technology from Par Parallel Wireless, um, Intel and Supermicro, the company aims to equip uh, 2G, 3G and 4G systems with white box solutions that can be upgraded upgraded to 5G in the future. Now, according to Hatem um, Bamatraf, um, Atisalat's international CTO, the combination of RAN virtualization and automation will enable Atisalat to meet the needs of its customers um, most cost effectively in Central Europe, um, Central Asia. Sorry, being able to use Open RAN system will help them not only extend their initial investment but bring about new services much faster. 
Interestingly, the news comes after Tisalat um, two years ago was a confirmed user of Huawei equipment. Um, actually, in uh, February 2019, Tisalat announced a contract with the uh, vendor to roll out 5G services in the UAE. So not sure why it hasn't gone with Huawei this time, but given the kind of mobile broadband pen penetration in the region is increasing, uh, I think it was up to 22% in 2019, up from 1% in 2013, with further growth expected in 2022. It obviously makes sense for them to jump on the uh, burgeoning open RAN train. Uh, but that's all from me this week. Uh, back to you, Melanie. Thanks, Natalie. Um, no doubt Alan might have something to say about that open RAN story there. Yes, I think I, I was wondering about that, listening to what Natalie was saying. I suspect this is a bit of the international pressure. Um, we talked about that on this last week when we looked at Huawei's annual results. Huawei's really taken a, a hit uh, in 2020 and into this year as well for its radio access network sales and its handset sales right across the world, everywhere but China, uh, every single region of the world it's fallen. And I suspect that Etisalat is probably following the trend and deciding to scale down its relationship with Huawei, especially as it moves into 5G and it's going to be testing open RAN. And also there are other issues, I guess, for Afghanistan. Uh, it's still a fairly big security problem. Um, and going along to every base station uh, to re-equip it with 5G um, and upgrade steady bit by bit uh, is a bit of a challenge. And, and maybe if they can put a, uh, as Natalie called it, a white box, which should be software upgradable, so over the air upgradable from 3G to 4G to 5G, uh, may, might make sense. Um, and it's not a very dense country. So I think the big challenges with Open RAN are in the very dense urban areas. Uh, and people like Paolo Wireless are addressing that, but it's still, I think we're still some way off from what people are saying. I mean, they're not really making a loud amount, a big amount of noise about whether it's possible or not. They just sort of say, well, maybe it's not quite, we're not quite there yet for dense urban networks, but it's mainly in rural and places like Afghanistan, which are, uh, fairly thinly, densely populated. I mean, the first one Vodafone did with Open RAN was in the middle of Wales, uh, almost as rural as you can get in the UK. So I think that's, and, and Telefonica, I think, has used them in uh, South America, used Open RAN in South America. So it, it, it's still very early days with Open RAN, but there's a lot of excitement in the market. But I think it's also trying to move it. Most companies are trying to move themselves away from that lock-in to not just Huawei, but also Ericsson, Nokia and ZTE um, so that they can, as, as Natalie said, you know, Supermicro. Who would have thought Supermicro would be a supplier to uh, radio access network equipment or Intel? You know, Intel makes computing equipment, but not radio equipment. It's a fantastic uh, change in the industry we were seeing at the moment. Indeed, yeah, and there are many changes in the industry at the moment, um, but we'll come into those soon. Um, thank you so much, Natalie. That was a great roundup. Um, so coming back to the changes, Alan, um, another trend that we've been covering recently um, is the acquisition of data centres. Um, tell us what's been happening over at Aquacoms. Well, yes, this is, well, Aquacoms is more of a subsea company, but yeah, uh, it's a whirlwind of a story. I mean, it was an investment trust was set up only a few weeks ago, uh, set up a digital inf infrastructure fund, uh, in March then, or announced it in March, then at the end of March it sold shares in it for £300 million, uh, Digital 9 Infrastructure it's called, 
Uh, and then a couple of days later, I mean, not a surprise because they flagged it a few weeks ago, they bought Aquacoms, which is a subsea company, cables across the Atlantic, across the Irish Sea and across the North Sea for $215 million. Now, this is only stage one. Uh, I spoke to Thor Johnson, who's leading the project for uh, Digital Nine infrastructure. He wants Digital Nine to buy fiber networks, largely for rural communities and data centers. And he wants those to be carbon neutral from the off. And he's buying existing infrastructure. It's not developing new infrastructure. So if you've got a data center or a fiber network or a subsea network, then talk to Thor. I've got his phone number. Um, and with loans and so on, because obviously they did this initial public offering of shares and raised 300 million. Uh, he's got a multiple of that for uh, investment. Uh, and he's already told me that he wants to acquire Ontix, which is a company that's building carrier neutral wireless infrastructure in London and elsewhere. That's 4G, 5G and Wi-Fi in hotspots, in tourist areas, in shopping centres eventually and things like that. Uh, in fact, Ontix today announced a contract with Westminster City Council in London to build Wi-Fi networks in, in markets for when we all can go to the market again. And sort of six of the most famous markets in central and the west end of London will have Ontix Wi-Fi before too long. Um, back to what Thor was telling me, Digital Nine's got a global network. He's looking at things in Asia, but in the near term, it'll be Europe and the US. Uh, and it's told its investors it's aiming to complete deals in the next six to 12 months. But actually, you know, he, he says, actually, we'd like to do it a bit earlier than that. So again, you know, I think they've got a, a shopping list from what I can understand. They've probably already been talking to potential companies. Aquacoms was lined up before the IPO in late March so that the deal could be completed as soon as they've got the, as soon as they've got the money. I suspect Ontix will, be, will follow fairly shortly. And I suspect there were some that are not yet announced uh, that we will get to hear about very shortly. But it's investment and it's, you know, it's not, it's not billions. It's not the scale of a uh, company digital colony in the States that I, I sometimes have been comparing Digital Nine to. Uh, which has bought data centers and towers and all sorts of things. Uh, and Zao, for example, the uh, global fiber company. But it's certainly buying quite a lot of, looking to be buying quite a lot of digital infrastructure. And it's like companies in the 19th century were buying railways and uh, building airports in the 20th century. It's, it's fixed infrastructure, nice steady return, not too boring but you'll know it's still going to be there in 10 years or 20 years and it'll just make a, a modest uh, income every year um, and it will keep your shareholders happy. Thanks Alan. Um, well going on to another story that you covered this week um, and again it sings to another trend, um, fibre backbones. Um, now Tanzania I believe is going to extend its national broadband backbone to the neighbouring East African country of Mozambique. What's been happening there? Yeah, it's a, it's a good old public versus private story as far as I can see it. I mean, companies such as Liquid Telecom in Africa, sorry, Liquid Intelligent Technologies as it is now, uh, are busy building fibre networks right across Africa. There's a few others as well. But this week, Tanzania uh, on the coast of East Africa decided to expand its own national broadband backbone into the neighbouring East African country of Mozambique. It's not far from the nearest point of presence in Tanzania to the Unity Bridge, which is the border across the Ravuma River into Mozambique. It's only 72 kilometres or so by my reckoning on Google Maps. Um, 
and uh, amazing how much I have to use things like Google Maps to work out where networks go these days. Um, and it'll cost about a million dollars, which is not a huge amount of money, but it's an interesting venture. Um, and Tanzania has already expanded its uh, national backbone network across its other borders into neighboring countries, Burundi, Kenya, Malawi, Rwanda, Uganda, and Zambia as well. So it wants to become a hub for ICT infrastructure and solutions, and I guess consultancy and development and so on in the region. Um, um, I guess that means it will be competing with Kenya, which is its neighbour to the north, and Kenya's subsea connections uh, are a bit better than Tanzania's. And if you go further north from Kenya, you get to the next huge market opportunity in Africa, which is Ethiopia. Um, so this, you know, if you once you get into Kenya, you can then get into Ethiopia. So what Tanzania is doing is, is quite a, an inspiring bit of connectivity. Come back to Ethiopia, though, government there, though it's beset with war on its borders and in its outlying provinces, it wants to license two new operators uh, this month. The deadline for applications was this week on the 5th of April, uh, but at the last minute, the Communications Authority pushed the deadline from the 5th to the 26th of April. Um, so get your applications in by 10 a.m. local time in Addis Ababa. Um, and we don't know what's going on there, whether they've had too few applications or they've had a lot of people who say, give us another couple of weeks. We just don't know. Uh, we will know after the 26th of April, I guess, but it's taking a long time. But for Tanzania, I mean, it's I think Tanzania and Kenya are obviously going to be competing as the, the digital hubs of the coastal East Africa. So Tanzania versus Kenya, um, both with a lot of skills and interesting that the government is there going to be competing with liquid, liquid uh, telecom, as I still call it, but is now liquid intelligent technologies, uh, which has a pan-African network, uh, as we've reported over the last few weeks. So, uh, and there are other people around there as well. So it's an interesting competitive market they've set up. Melanie, back to you. Thanks, Alan. Um, yes, that liquid name change will take a bit of getting used to, um, but I'm sure it'll be rolling off the tongue in no time. And obviously you have the interview with Mr. Rednick as well in the next in next issue, sorry, of Capacity Magazine. So lots more coming from that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, I had a really good chat with Nick Rednick and uh, I shall be writing it up for the next issue. So stay, stay tuned to uh, Capacity Magazine. Thanks, Alan. Um, we are also joined this week by Telecom Sun Frontier, and we will be talking all about their work with Emmanuel shortly. Um, but before that, a quick roundup of the latest news on the data centre front. Um, inspired by the Paris Accord over in India, Airtel has partnered with AMP Energy to commission a 14 megawatt captive solar power plant. It's hoped that will help Airtel's next division meet its green energy requirements um, for core and edge data centres. The company currently has 10 large facilities and 120 edge facilities across India. Um, now, the development is part of Airtel's drive to implement clean fuel-based power solutions for its towers, data centres, switching centres and other facilities. Um, and Airtel actually acquired a 26% equity stake in AMP's solar division not so long ago. Um, so development is a natural progression of that deal, um, but it will also help Nextra to meet its FY22 sustainability targets, which include um, sorry, 50% of all power being sourced from renewables. 
Um, and now over in Africa, following on from the um, hub that we've just heard about on the East Coast, we've also heard of two projects this week contributing the creation of a data hub on the continent's West Coast. Um, the first development came from Liquid's Africa Data Centers, which is in the midst of a regional expansion strategy. And an update this week, ADC said its 10 megawatt facility in Nigeria is well underway and once complete will form its West African hub. Um, and in Senegal, N plus one has partnered with the telecoms ministry to launch three latest generation interconnected data centers across the country as it develops a digital hub for French speaking West Africa. Now, N plus one was actually the first neutral and independent data center operator in Morocco, so north of the continent. Um, and it currently has 10 facilities across multiple campuses. But with this latest announcement, it will be able to support more local enterprises to digitalize, and it will also attract international cloud operators to deploy cloud platforms in Senegal. Um, but there's a huge social angle to this story too, which has really captured our attention, um, because M plus one is also working with the general delegation for rapid entrepreneurship of women and youth, and the Digital Technologies Park of Senegal, and the idea here is to support the digitalization of public and private sector players. Um, so lots happening across Africa um, on, on telecoms and data center front. And we will definitely be keeping across all of those developments as they um, continue to develop. And also next week, um, starting on the 13th of April, we have Digital Infra Africa taking place fully online. Um, the details for which will be in the links in the post that brought you to this podcast. And we will also have an agenda packed full of presentations and conferences talking about digital infrastructure in Africa. Um, but we are joined next by Emmanuel Jean, Projects Coordinator for Telecom Sans Frontières, um, which as an organization needs no introduction and the relationship with capacity goes back a very long way too. So Emmanuel, we are delighted that you can join us live today. Welcome to the Digital Digest. Thank you, Emmanuel. I'm very pleased to be here with you. Now, today, Emmanuel is going to be talking about the various parts of TSF's work around the world, um, but we're going to begin in Syria because last month marked 10 years since the start of a conflict that's devastated the country, and TSF has been there throughout, um, not just keeping communications open, but over that time, you've also supported medical centres, remote learning, education, um, and refugees, and you still have four people on the ground there. So tell us about the wider operation that TSF maintains in Syria today. Yeah, as you say, uh, the Syria crisis is terrible. It's uh, one of the worst humanitarian crises since the Second World War. And for us at Telecom Sans Frontières, it's very important to provide support uh, to the Syrian people who are uh, living there and whose lives uh, were sever uh, severely disrupted by the conflict. Um, so TSF's response in Syria is uh, organized uh, around two main aspects. First, the support to medical care in the northwest part of the country and the support to education and particularly digital education uh, in, in Turkey for the Syrian refugee children. So the mission uh, has lasted nine years now for us, so it's very long. And we moved to an, to an emergency response to immediate needs at the beginning of the, of the conflict to now a response that integrates more resilience aspects and that uh, beats the response in close collaboration with the affected communities. So we, we have provided and we also provide equipment, but we provide also training to install and manage these connectivities for the medical part in, in partnership with the USSM, which is the Union for the Medical Care and Relief Organizations in Syria. And we also provide training for using digital tools in education and specific pedagogical approach to address the specific needs of the Syrian children. 
Indeed, these children are all suffering from psychological trauma and there are significant disparities in the levels in the same class, given that they, they, they have lived unstable lives and uh, with their families since many years. Last year, the COVID-19 crisis has further worsened the living condition for the people living in Syria. The connectivity in the medical centers enabled to adapt quickly to the new constraints, for example, with the remote psychosocial support consultations or pre-appointments via WhatsApp that are now necessary to avoid overcrowded waiting rooms. The refugee children that we are supporting in Turkey were also obliged to stay home during several months, like in many countries. And during this period, the digital tools that we, have, we had introduced since 2013 and the way of teaching that we have progressively improved during these years enable us to set up the, a remote follow-up relatively easily. In our project, the children are used to working in autonomy and in groups on a given resource. So we pay attention to families that don't have a tablet or a computer at home, and uh, we, let, we provided devices uh, so that the child or the children of the family could uh, use when they are turned to stay in contact with their teachers, their friends, uh, because we also organize remote sessions uh, for the classroom using Google Meet. And um, yeah, and this enabled them also to work on the different subjects. Interestingly, our teachers had the opportunity to speak with the parents of these children. And these, these persons were very happy of the remote sessions because their kids could still um, continue to work at home uh, during the very difficult time they had to, to, to get home, to stay home, sorry. Uh, which is an additional difficulty for a refugee family. Um, thanks, Manuel. Um, now, as you mentioned, TSF has been responding to the Syrian crisis for nine years now, and you're providing um, connectivity to respond to other protracted crises as well. Um, tell us about some of those projects and how they work. Yeah, providing connectivity as a humanitarian aid is the core of uh, TSF activity since 1998, when we were founded. Um, what I would like to highlight today is that the concept of connectivity can take more than one shape in humanitarian contexts, and particularly in the last years, where we face more and more crises that last in time, um, whereas the emergencies affected communication were more punctual, like from one month to a few months in the previous years. Nowadays, there are more and more people that are pushed to move from their country by poverty or violence. They often face serious difficulties during their trip and the cases of migrants can lead to extreme vulnerability. This kind of crisis generally lasts several years and therefore we try to set up an assistance that is adapted to the needs. So for example, in Lesbos in September, last September, after the fire that devastated the former camp of Moria, we installed an emergency internet connectivity that currently benefits around um, 8, uh, 8, sorry, 800 persons a day. It enables the refugees who live in the camp to be in contact with their loved ones through instant messaging and social networks. In Mexico, there are also many migrants who are fleeing violence and poverty from different countries in Central America. After providing free calls during a few years, we turn to displaying essential information coming from different reliable sources like NGOs, government agencies, or United Nations agencies to make them aware of their rights, safety measures, and the support that they could benefit from in the country. And the assessment of, of the project in Mexico in 2020 last year showed that one migrant over six 
has learned about the COVID-19 pandemic on our screens so in, the, in the shelters they are living in. 60% um, applied for asylum in Mexico and 18% for a humanitarian visa. So the access to this information gives them the means to make informed decision, which is in line with our vision of supporting people by giving them the means to decide themselves of what is good for them. Excellent. Um, so currently at TSF, um, I believe that you have eight, eight active missions across eight countries, um, but I want to talk next about tech. Could you tell us about some of the technological challenges that you face um, when you're bringing connectivity and you're on these missions? Yeah, sure. So we indeed face technical constraints that are related to the emergency context we are operating in, but also to the use of the connectivity in this context and what we expect from the connectivity from a humanitarian point of view. As, as an NGO specialized in telecommunications and new technology, we have a number of uh, available ways to provide internet access in this context. And we have to take uh, in account in every context uh, its own constraints and challenges that can often come up only once when we are on the ground, which is more difficult. <laughs> Thanks to uh, over 20 years of experience in a wide range of situations, our technical team has the ability to adapt the technical solution to ensure it responds in the best way possible to the needs of the population we are assisting, while overcoming any possible uh, technical constraints. Even though we choose the most appropriate equipment for a given situation, the connectivity that we provide has its own technical specs and we have to respond to the needs with the given bandwidth. This can be tricky actually because the devices that we know and that are spread in the vast majority of countries and the apps that we use daily and that are also used worldwide may generate a lot of traffic. On a field connection that can lead to making it saturated and therefore completely useless and unusable for everyone. So to tackle this, our technical team has created bandwidth management solution that's aimed to filter um, or limit the traffic per device or service in order to provide the humanitarian connectivity that answers the essential needs in a given situation. Sounds very interesting. Um, now, TSF services have been called on during the COVID crisis, um, and this has highlighted some of the other work that you've done as an NGO to bridge digital divides around the world. Um, so from a connectivity perspective, do you feel COVID has helped national governments to realize the importance of infrastructure planning so that these divides can be kind of like meaningfully tackled? Um, this is difficult for me to answer this question. The, the COVID-19 crisis has brought the digital divide in the forefront um, and showed the importance of new technologies, in particular those that allow remote communications, work or education. And actually this is what TSF has been advocating for since its foundation. I would say that the COVID made us experience this digital divide, not only in remote or developing areas, but also in our countries. For, for us, um, bit in providing community centers in Madagascar with connectivity and activities like training or um, help to doing the homework thanks to internet or enabling the Syrian children to follow their courses, as we said earlier, in Turkey from home. Uh, this participates in bridging the digital divide. And, and yeah, that, that, that's, um, that will still be a challenge for, for the next month or years, maybe. But at TSF, we believe um, in that use of new technologies and telecoms in humanitarian or developing contexts that leads to empower people and communities.
Very true, yes. Um, and staying with the COVID crisis, how do you believe that that's impacted your long-term activities, you know, such as fundraising? Yeah, um, I think all organizations uh, have been impacted by the COVID crisis. And at TSF, we have we have faced huge challenges and we had to adapt very quickly. Um, so we moved to distance learning. As we said, we opened some new connections in Syria. Um, yeah, and we tried to continue also the project that were already launched, which was a, a challenge also in itself. Um, from a deployment point of view, as everyone, we are facing travel restrictions and quarantines while entering countries, etc. So it is more difficult to deploy, but where possible, we did it yesterday and, and we will do it also uh, this year. So, for example, in Honduras, uh, after Hurricane um, Eta and Yota, in Lebanon, following the explosion in Beirut port, and in Greece, uh, in Lesbos. From a fundraising point of view, yeah. It's the same. I think many, many organizations and companies were impacted by the COVID and the companies has to focus on work in a new world, in a new organized world. And perhaps CSR was, was a second, um, was a second uh, idea in this period. Um, but we are lucky to be supported by loyal partners that you can find listed uh, on our website, tsfi.org, and who share our values and vision. And I would like to, to, to get, take the, this opportunity to thank Capacity Media uh, for uh, enabling me to talking about TSF uh, today. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Emmanuel. We're very pleased to have you here. Um, and we look forward to continuing to support um, Telecom Sun Frontier in future as well. Um, but now just to build on the, um, on the things that you've been telling us so far, Natalie, Alan, do you have any um, further questions? Yeah, if I could uh, jump in, Emmanuel, uh, thank you. Um, and it's great to be able to support TSF uh, as we have done for so long. But as a as a you you send your people into some really dangerous situations, um, and in the case of Syria and one or two others, very political situations. How do you make sure your people do not get identified with one side or another in a conflict like Syria, and therefore become let's hope they don't let's be, uh, become targets or you know potential targets by one one of the warring sides or the other yeah uh, that has been a challenge since a few years when the humanitarian became uh, targets uh, mainly in, in uh, armed conflict and also in very dangerous situations as you mentioned my answer to this would be um, how we choose our partner on the ground for example the, the medical um, organization who is uh, partnering with us in Syria. Um, so, they, I mean, be it them or us, we, we face dangerous situations and some hospitals, as everyone knows, were bombed in Syria. Um, so, yeah, this is difficult. And I think, I think that some doctors uh, were also killed in, in these bombings. So this is very difficult. So it, it's, it's about um, partnering with people who know very good the ground and um, providing them with training and uh, trying to, to be aware of uh, the context and the situation uh, every day. Great. I remember uh, moving away from Syria a couple of years ago, we, we covered what TSF was doing in Central America with a lot of refugees who were trying to make their way towards the US border. And you were doing a lot of uh, charitable work for them 
those people who are you know walking across Central America with no food and mm -hmm. not enough clothes. Um, and that could have been very difficult because, you know, it was a, an intensely political issue in the United States because, uh, you know, marked one side versus the other classically. I mean, maybe it's uh, moved, moved on a bit since then, but that must have been uh, horrendously difficult for you guys to to maintain a, a neutral stance as a, a as a charity, just looking after people's welfare in very difficult conditions. Yeah, um, in, in this particular context, I would say that um, yeah, the, the main idea is to to provide the people with humanitarian information that will uh, participate to their daily uh, survival and also about their rights. So what they have the right to do in this country, if they have a problem, how will they um, get help or get um, take care for if they are ill, for example. And this is also a question of partnering with the right organizations in Mexico to gather uh, the right information and to, 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 to be partner of organizations who are um, providing also these services. Well, your people are very brave and very admirable and <laughs> I salute them. Yeah. So um, just one question for me, Emmanuel, um, you know, I, you know, capacity has, as you mentioned a few times, has been a kind of a, a longstanding friend of TSF and partner, as it were. But um, I think, um, you know, for the for the, anybody listening, you know, I think it would be great for them to understand, you know, the ways in which they could continue to partner with TSF, you know, and, and kind of also if it, you know, beyond funding, if there's ways in which, you know, the market, the telecoms market, you know, can kind of get involved and really support the work that you guys are doing. Yes, so um, for this, I think that the best is to first talk about TSF, maybe follow us on social networks. So you can find them on our website and also on our website, we have a section called supporters. So you can uh, go there and uh, find different means to supporters, either by a donation or by uh, uh, setting up a more uh, direct partnership with us. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Manuel. Um, and we'll include a link to that um, page in the post that brought you to this podcast. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this week's edition. Um, thank you so much to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thank you to Manuel and Telecom Sans Frontier. Um, and thanks also to everybody who listened. We will return next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. There you can sign up for the Daily Telecoms news alerts from Capacity and also the weekly news alerts from Data Economy. And also online, you'll find the latest issue of Capacity Magazine, as well as details for our events calendar for 2021. Um, as mentioned earlier, we have Digital Infra Africa starting next week. And then following that, we also have Capacity LATAM at the end of April. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.